0: New symptoms or conditions that develop after COVID infection.
1: Does monitoring physical activity change physical activity?
0: When somebody breaks their hip, should we cement it or not in repair?
1: And can you lose weight by sleeping longer?
0: That's what we're talking about this week on T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist.
1: And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine.
0: So talking about COVID stuff first. So these are two studies we're treating together, and these are taking a look at new symptoms and conditions among people who have had COVID infection. One of them is in JAMA Network Open, and the other one is in the BMJ. So let's look at the JAMA Network Open one first. This one assessed new diagnoses of select symptoms and conditions between 31 and 150 days after testing among persons who tested positive, and they also had a cohort that tested negative as a control for SARS-CoV-2. And basically what they found in this study was that shortness of breath was more common among those people with a positive test result, and of course that's no surprise, and also new fatigue. And among the younger cohorts, something that we've reported on before, which was this increase In type 2 diabetes. In the BMJ, what they looked at was the risk of persistent and new clinical sequelae among adults 65 years and older after they had already been infected and had COVID. This was a giant cohort among people who were enrolled in a Medicare Advantage plan. 32% of them, which was a lot of people Almost 28,000 people sought medical attention in the post-acute period for one or more new or persistent clinical sequelae. They compared that with data that they had from 2020 and data that they had from 2019. They found in comparing with people who had had a viral lower respiratory tract illness that respiratory failure, dementia, and post-viral fatigue had increased differences among those people who ended up with COVID, although there were also a number of other things that they looked at too, respiratory failure, heart rhythm disorders, kidney injury, mental health diagnoses that also seemed like, okay, maybe there was a signal there.
1: So Elizabeth, the value of these studies is, we've talked about long COVID symptoms, is that there's over two and a half million patients between these two studies. They confirm that sequelae are not terribly uncommon. In the initial study, those individuals below or above the age of 20, about 11% had sequelae. In those over 65, about a third had sequelae. And by the way, it's more common in hospitalized than in non-hospitalized patients. Tells us that the more severe the infection, the more likely someone is to have long-term sequelae.
0: I guess I'm wondering about action points here, because if what people are complaining about is shortness of breath or fatigue, which are the most common things, there's really not a lot that we can offer.
1: No. And in fact, most of these things that you talk about, these are things that we really don't have any control over, even when the individuals get diabetes. And by the way, the incidence of that is less than 1%. We can treat that, but the other things we can't. You know, if people need to get motivated to get vaccinated or boosted to try to avoid COVID infection, this ought to be one of the motivating factors. The other thing this and other studies don't address is how long do these last?
0: We're going to be watching, of course, and which of yours would you like to turn to?
1: Let's talk about physical activity monitors. These are these devices that people wear that monitor their activity. Sometimes it's monitoring steps or how much movement they have. And there have been a number of different studies that have looked at different subgroups and tried to address the question of: Do these physical activity monitors, other than just informing individuals, do they actually change activity? Because that's what you'd like. The American Heart Association recommendations are people do 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous exercise per week. That's 30 minutes a day. Does monitoring help? to increase that. But what these authors tried to do is look at the totality of studies, not just individual patient groups, but if you look at all the data together, what does it show? Because the individual studies are sometimes conflicting. So they looked at eligible randomized control trials that compared the interventions in which adults receive feedback from the physical activity monitor versus those in which no feedback was provided. They identified 121 randomized control trials they could examine, Almost 17,000 participants. There was a moderate effect on physical activity. And people that use these monitors walk on average an additional 1,235 steps. By the way, the baseline was pretty small. It was about 800 steps. There was a small effect on moderate to vigorous physical activity. It increased it by about 48 minutes every week. It didn't do anything to change sedentary behavior, decrease that by about 10 minutes. But if you do want to perform moderate or vigorous activity and you have goals set, the physical activity monitors appear to be helpful in that regard.
0: In some respects, I think not really surprising. It sounds like a lot of preaching to the choir in that if you're already physically active or your intention is to be physically active, then the monitors simply corroborate that. They're not really motivational.
1: A lot of us buy equipment at home to exercise, and it becomes places we hang our clothes, or you wear something on your wrist and it lasts for about two weeks and it doesn't do anything. So I've actually been skeptical that these actually provided much benefit. When you look at the totality of the evidence, it sheds a different light on the matter. At least it did for me.
0: Let's just note that this is in the BMJ, so then I have to follow up and say, so are you going to buy one of these things?
1: Well, Elizabeth, as you know, I have a stationary bike at home and I have a certain number of minutes that I perform each week on it. And so on a bike, as you know, indoor, the physical activity monitor doesn't really help you at all.
0: Let's turn then to the New England Journal of Medicine. A public health problem, it's hip fractures in older folks. And this is a randomized multicenter controlled trial that compares cementing with uncemented hemiarthroplasty in patients 60 years of age or older with an intracapsular hip fracture. About half of all hip fractures occur at the neck of the femur, and the majority of these are treated with a partial hip replacement in which the head of the femur is replaced by a metal implant, hemiarthroplasty, and the controversy is, well, how do you best fix that thing to the femur? I was educated here in the knowledge that injection of bone cement during surgery has been associated with a drop in patient's blood pressure. And in rare cases, sometimes results in cardiovascular collapse and death. So this fixed versus unfixed prosthesis is really something that's very important. And the uncemented devices, of course, are more modern in many ways, and they have a material that's on them that helps to integrate them with the bone. I also think of those prostheses often as this sexy new thing that sometimes turns out to not be any better than what's been tried and true. So in this study, what they did was recruit about 1,200 patients, 610 who had the cemented hemiarthroplasty, 615 with an uncemented hemiarthroplasty. They looked at follow-up data on these folks at four months, just shy of 72% of them were available for follow-up at that point. And they did a thing that's called an EQ5D utility score to assess, well, all right, who's doing better? It turns out that the cemented group did better. Oh, what are you thinking? If you broke your hip, would you have an uncemented or cemented hemiarthroplasty?
1: When 30% of the patients, you don't have the results on them, it leads me to doubt the accuracy of the results of the study as you said, they looked at quality of life, they did a questionnaire, and it was statistically significant in terms of the difference in quality. But in terms of the clinical ramifications, it's really a very modest at at all clinical benefit if there is one. And so what would I have? I'd have it done by the surgeon I think is the most talented, and whatever he or she is most comfortable using. Now, one of the things I was surprised at is in the past, they said that the risk of having a periprocedural fracture was about 5 to 15%. Here, it's really less and 2.1% in either of the two types of prosthesis. That tells me that we're getting much better at implanting these devices, regardless of which one.
0: Back to this issue that you brought up of periprosthetic fractures, there was a difference between those.
1: 0.5% versus 2%. Those are relatively minor differences.
0: Let's just note, though, another thing that they did in this study was they included patients who had some degree of cognitive impairment. They have note that 40% of all patients with hip fracture have some degree of cognitive impairment. So I think that's an important group to include in here. They also talked about one of the reasons that they had patients lost to follow-up. Some of that was death, of course.
1: So you're right. There were some that passed away, but these were 30% that were lost to follow-up. And as you mentioned, when you're doing quality of life indicators and you're talking to people that are cognitively impaired, it's hard to know whether the quality of life is any different with one device versus the other. So that's why, to me, these devices are more similar than dissimilar.
0: My conclusion is I'm glad that they're looking at these little small slices of this. And we have certainly noted many times about these ostensibly more advanced devices that have turned out to not be more advanced Let's move on to yours. If you're overweight, should you be sleeping more in the internal medicine? Yep.
1: So Elizabeth, I was surprised at this. I knew that sleep deprivation had adverse effects on your health, but I did not know that one of them was associated with obesity. It seems that people that have sleep deprivation are sleeping less than seven hours per day, have increased caloric intake of about 275 to 300 calories per day, which translates into gaining weight over that time of sleep deprivation if you take people that are overweight and sleep deprived and you actually have them sleep longer, how does that affect their metabolism? And that's exactly what this study did. They took 80 randomized individuals. that again, were overweight. They were sleeping about six and a half hours per night on average. And half of them, they just continued to follow them and particularly their energy intake and their energy expenditure. And then the other half, they put them on a program to have them sleep longer. It took about two weeks to get them to do this. And on average, they were sleeping about 1.2 hours longer than they had beforehand. Those that slept longer had a significant decrease in their energy intake compared with the control group. About a 270 Calorie per day decrease in energy intake. That was associated with a modest weight reduction. This is just in the first two weeks. This is, to me, pretty surprising. Better sleep habits decrease energy intake. Now, what we don't know is, this is a fairly short study. It's a two-week study. We don't know whether this will be sustained over a long period of time. That will require further study.
0: I find this really interesting because I think unless somebody came and hit you over the head, the likelihood that you would be able to actually remain asleep an hour and a half longer a night is pretty low. And I would say the same thing is true for me. So I'm kind of struggling with that.
1: Okay, well, this first of all, this is a particular patient group. We know they're sleep deprived and they're overweight to begin with. Neither one of us at this particular time finds ourselves in that category. But I do think it's something we need to consider for our patients that are obese. Very seldom do we talk about their sleep habits. So that's why I think this study is really informative. Does it apply to different groups of patients? We don't know. Is it sustained? We don't know at this particular time, but it certainly forms the foundation for looking at those issues.
0: And I guess I would also note that this is something that's unlikely to result in harm. And it's also something that people can do on their own. It's a risk factor that's within their control. And we like those kind of things.
1: Yep. And so people say, well, what sort of things do you need to do to get better sleep? Just some common sense things. You go to bed and you wake up at the same time each day. That includes on the weekends. You sleep in a darkened room. You make sure you have a comfortable temperature. You avoid caffeinated beverages close to bedtime. You exercise during the day and you engage in relaxing activities near bedtime.
0: Okay. On that note then, that's a little bit this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy.
1: And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all listen up make healthy choices.